How's it going, everybody? This is Christian Hagen, your host. Uh, wanted to drop a quick apology for the, uh, let's say, staggered release schedule over the uh, past few weeks. Had the flu for a bit. That was fun. And then, uh, let's see, just work and family stuff, the holidays. Everyone's been a little busy, so... Uh, you know, one or two things have come up here and there. So I hope you'll forgive us, uh, for not being consistent, which is, you know, probably not great considering we just started the show and, you know, every, everyone loves a new show, which doesn't have a firm release schedule. That's always nice. Uh, wanted to take this opportunity to announce what we will be, uh, what the episode will be about next week in case you wanted to watch the movie before the episode comes out. The next episode will be about the film The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan film, uh, which I suppose by revealing that now kind of gives away The Prestige, assuming that you consider our show to be sort of a magic trick, which I guess I do. I do. I do. Uh... So, uh, if you want to watch that, should be on Netflix. Hopefully it still is. It was when we watched it, but who knows? Um, and then, uh, please, I wanted to also drop uh, a request from you. I know you're listening to a show and I'm asking you to do something who, who put me in charge. I did. Um, we have, uh, been added to iTunes and to Stitcher. We're hoping to spread to a few other platforms soon, but I would love it. It would do a huge solid to me if you could, uh, you know, give us a subscription on Apple Podcasts if you like it, if it, or if you don't, or you know, whatever. Leave us a review. Uh, let us know what you're thinking. Uh, what do you What do you like about the show? What do you not like about the show? What are some movies you think we should cover? Uh, what are some contexts? Feel free to send us tweets, Facebook posts, um, bug us all hours of the night, especially David. Just like if you if you have David's cell phone number, call him at 3 a.m. and just be like, hey, I got a context for you, buddy. And I've I've gotten he he's actually right here. Is that? Yeah, he says that's great. That's a great idea. And in fact, he wants me to give out his cell phone number. Don't have time this time, but maybe next week. Um, so yeah, just let us know what you're thinking. Drop us a review, drop us a line, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we can, uh, we can pay you back somehow by making the show just a little bit better. Uh, anyway, uh, this is a short one this week because it's a, a simple topic that I just wanted to sort of highlight because I thought it'd be fun. Uh, hope you enjoy it. And, uh, again, feel free to drop us a line. Let us know what you think. In the meantime, enjoy this episode of Contextual Deviance. Bye. Thank you. Picture this. You're an adventurer, and you've come to a great dark cave in the hopes of stealing a precious gem housed in a shrine deep within the rocky walls. You are alone, uncertain of what lies ahead, and while there is a great reward for fetching this rare gem, you don't know its origins or its purpose. You're walking through the cave. What does it sound like? Do you imagine it like a scene from a movie, dramatic and tense? Do you hear music? What does it sound like? Does it sound like this? Oh, James Gunn, you beautiful so-and-so. 
The 2014 Marvel space adventure Guardians of the Galaxy was surprising in many ways. While audiences by that point were turning out to Marvel movies in droves, mainstream audiences were all but totally unfamiliar with the Guardians of the Galaxy characters, mythos, and history. How unfamiliar? So much so that Marvel Studios, the tight-fisted overlords of a cinematic universe so vast and wealthy that they have confidently planned franchises stretching out over most of the next decade, a studio whose infamous executive meddling has ended partnerships with Joss Whedon, Edgar Wright, and Ava DuVernay, among others, Marvel Studios allowed cult movie director James Gunn to not only direct a big-budget, CGI-filled action blockbuster under their flagship, but to rewrite the history of the Guardians from the ground up. Here's how drastic the reimagining of these characters was. Of the original members of the Guardians of the Galaxy from 1969, only one appears in the 2014 film. Yondu, the blue-skinned space pirate, here represented not as a Guardian, but as a pseudo-villain and a mercenary. And the members who do appear are changed from their comic book counterparts as well. In his original form, Drax the Destroyer is actually a human from Earth whose spirit is imbued in an alien body to fight Thanos. Gamora has a superhuman healing factor similar to the X-Men's Wolverine, and Peter Quill fully grew up on Earth, became a NASA astronaut, and was stranded in space before being picked up by the Ravagers. In the film, by contrast, Drax is a separate alien species, Gamora doesn't seem to have a healing factor, though it's never really explored, and Peter Quill was abducted by the Ravagers as a child. It's fair to assume that only with a property as relatively unknown as the Guardians of the Galaxy would Marvel Studios and Disney let an offbeat director and his team play so fast and loose with their story in a genre that is so heavily defined by its canon. And it paid off. Despite relative obscurity, the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie went on to gross more than $333 million at the North American box office, making it the third highest grossing movie of 2014. All of this was surprising. But probably the most surprising thing about Guardians of the Galaxy was its soundtrack. The collection, titled Awesome Mix Volume 1, included 12 songs. Of these, not a single one was previously unreleased. In fact, nine of the 12 songs charted in the top five of the Billboard Hot 100 list, one charted at 19, and only two, Moon Age Daydream by David Bowie and Cherry Bomb by The Runaways, were not released as singles, but still remain rock classics. These songs have existed in the minds of many for decades, played on loops at local classic rock radio stations around the country so often that most audiences who heard them before their inclusion in this movie were probably already sick of them, or at least bored by them. And yet despite the fact that it featured no original music, Awesome Mix Volume 1 sold at number one on the Billboard charts, the first soundtrack with no original material to do so in history. It was the second best-selling soundtrack of 2014 behind Frozen. It was the fifth best-selling album of any kind in 2014. I'm going to repeat that. A compilation of 12 already popular songs from four decades before its release became the fifth best-selling album of 2014. What can account for this sudden explosion in popularity for a bunch of 70s rock and pop hits? One word. Context. By putting these well-worn songs into a superhero movie, the filmmakers managed to revitalize the audience's associations with those songs. 
They went from the background noise on your morning commute to the accompanying pieces of a large and colorful space battle. When we have a visual analog to a song, it makes the song more memorable by making us examine its lyrics, forcing us to ask, what does this song have to do with this scene? And by cueing moments of activity with the beats and crescendos of the song. This is the fundamental basis of many styles of dance and of the ubiquity of music videos. The juxtaposition of a song to an accompanying visual imbues each with a new meaning that will stick in the memory of the audience. Now this can be done poorly. Sometimes a music cue in a movie can seem mawkish, like the use of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah behind a fiery sex scene in the movie Watchmen, which made the whole scene feel overly maudlin and stiff. But when it's done well, these song pairings can be transformative to their art. But this makes the story of the awesome mix even more remarkable, because these 12 songs were not the only source of music in the film. There was a fully orchestrated score composed by Tyler Bates and released in stores around the same time as the awesome mix. It's arguable that that score was more integral to driving the movie than a dozen old rock songs. By the previous logic, the score should have been the musical release with the stronger mental and emotional artistic connections for the audience. So why wasn't it? The answer lies in not just how the awesome mix benefited from Guardians, but also how Guardians benefited from the awesome mix. Marvel, in preparing an unknown property with vast sums of money on the line, needed to ground the story with as much familiar material as possible. This is true in the script, filled with goofy quips, a few pop culture references, and recognizable character archetypes, and in its cast, a collection of bankable Hollywood stars, but especially in the music. Using already popular songs to bolster key scenes helped the filmmakers to focus an audience that could have easily become mired in the convoluted lore of multiple warring factions, species, and entire worlds. Many movies have used this same idea to ground their stories, but Guardians did it in a way that I think sets it apart from almost anything in its genre that came before. It made the music diegetic. Diegesis is more or less an overly fancy word for the source of something, uh, where it's coming from. In film, it's used to denote whether something in a movie exists within the fiction of the film or if it exists outside of the story for the audience's benefit. For example, a film score is typically considered non-diegetic because the characters can't hear it and no one, as far as the audience is aware, is playing the music just out of sight of the screen. It's like a layer of music between the movie world and our world. By contrast, music that is diegetic in a movie comes from within the character's reality. A guy goes into a bar and there's a band playing. The band's music is diegetic. A woman picks a song on a jukebox, and the song that plays is diegetic. What Guardians of the Galaxy chose to do, which very few movies of its kind do, was to make these seemingly incongruous classic rock songs a part of the character's experience of the world. Peter Quill dances with Gamora to fooled around and fell in love, and he uses Ooh Child to distract the evil Ronin. The characters reference his cassette player, and Quill faces a pivotal plot moment when he needs to recover the player from an alien prison guard. The songs then not only accompany the action on screen, they accompany the life of the main character. And he spreads his love of these songs to his fellow Guardians. They are given meaning to the characters, and as the audience grows to care about the characters and relate to them, the meaning of these songs passes to the audience as well. By making the music front and center in the world of the movie, James Gunn and company were able to give each song a moment as the sonic focal point of a scene. 
And that's powerful, because no matter how many times you think you've heard a song, I guarantee you'll hear something unique from it if you hear it in a massive theater surround sound system. When the songs are let loose, their nuances, their peaks and valleys, their grooves are inevitably ingrained on the listener. Couple that effect with the visual pairing of a massively popular movie and Guardians of the Galaxy managed to reintroduce and recontextualize these 12 songs for millions of people around the world. I don't know that this can be prescriptive. I don't think there's a handy how-to guide for successfully integrating classic rock songs into a movie. It might not ever work for another film franchise, there's always a chance that Awesome Mix Volume 1's sales were a fluke. But if there's a lesson to be learned from this story, I think it's that almost anything can be revitalized in your mind when you put it in a different context. I mean, I never thought I'd listen to Hooked on a Feeling for fun in the 21st century, but I am. And now I'm wondering just what else my dad has in his record collection that could use a flashy Hollywood revival. Thank you for listening to Contextual Deviants. If you'd like to reach out to us online, you can find us on Twitter at Contextual Deviants or email us at contextualdeviants at gmail.com. Special thanks to Minneapolis' own The Bad Man for the use of the song Gun Tonic off of their album Ain't Clean. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I've been your host, Christian Hagen. Have a nice day. Have a nice day!